We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 tonight. As you're turning there, let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord God, we ask that you would open up our eyes to see it tonight. God, that you would open up our ears to hear it. That you would open up our hearts that we might do it, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1962, General Douglas MacArthur gave a speech to the Corps of Cadets at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. In that speech, he had these famous words, duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, and what you will be. They are your rallying point to build courage when comfort seems to fail, to regain faith when there seems to be little cause for faith, to create hope when hope becomes forlorn. In our passage tonight, we'll see a statement from the Apostle Peter that serve a similar but higher purpose for those who trust Christ as their Savior. We'll see how Peter's words help us to order our lives and persevere when faced with trials and persecutions. As we look at these words from 1 Peter 2.17, We'll organize our thoughts around three main ideas, keeping with Pastor's theme of using C words for the main points of the day, context, construction, and commands. Before we read the passage, let's begin first with the context. As we reviewed in Sunday School this morning, the book of First Peter is written to elect exiles that were suffering persecution for their faith. It doesn't seem from the reading of the letter that it was an official legislative type of persecution, but trials in common to um, early Christians, such as insults, chapter 4, verse 4 and 14, slanderous accusations, chapter 2, verses 12, chapter 3, verse 16, beatings, chapter 2, verse 20, and the like. Chapter 5, verse 12 gives us Peter's main purpose in writing. It says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So as citizens of heaven, looking forward to an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance, we shouldn't be surprised by similar suffering. As Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We, as Christians, have experienced the true grace of God. And like the exiles in that Peter is writing to, we should be encouraged to stand firm in it. In chapter 2, Peter reminds us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people that have received mercy. And yet, like these first century believers, we experience trials and persecution. In the midst of, of this, Peter begins to unpack what it means to live as those that are called to be holy, as God is holy. Our verse falls in the section of the epistle where Peter is discussing submission as it relates to institutional authority, slaves and masters, the marriage relationship, and as the church before the watching world. The specific context of verse 17 is the section that the heading in the NIV titles, Living Godly Lives in a Pagan Society. So, here is first, first Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This, is, this was read in the morning service. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme 
or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So having set this context, let's move on to the second point of the evening, the construction. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, seems a bit different than other lists of commands that Peter or other New Testament writers give, in that they are succinct and given without any further commentary. Short, punchy, almost slogan-like, kind of like John, John, uh, Dr. MacArthur, or not Dr. MacArthur, General MacArthur's duty, honor, and country. This isn't something like the things, that are, things in them that are hard to understand that Peter wrote about some of Paul's letters. They're plain, they're simple, they're brief, they're clear, exactly like laws that are our guide and light should be. Despite their clarity, I think it's worth our time to take a minute to consider the order in which they're written. Do you take them as individual statements? Each one holds enough weight that it would be a worth, worthwhile exercise. Do you take them as pairs? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood as one pair. Fear God, honor the emperor as another pair. There's merit in this. The first pair looks at groups, the second at individuals. We can gain from that comparison. Another option is to look at the structure of the whole. L. Moeller describes this verse as a chiasm, an ancient pattern of pairing elements together in an A, B, B, A structure in which the central pair receives the emphasis. I think it's this last option that gives some insight into Peter's purpose of declaring the true grace of God so that we can stand firm. The outer elements, honor everyone and honor the emperor, point us to our obligations to those outside the faith. The more prominent pair, love the brotherhood, fear God, reminds us that our ultimate obligation is to the community of faith and to God himself. Even the impact of the verbs, love and fear, are much stronger than the call to honor. Love and fear hit us with an intensity and a personal emotional response that honor doesn't. So in the context of living as foreigners and exiles, called primarily to respond to God in fear, our fellow sojourners in love, let's move on to our third point, the commands. So in keeping with the chiasm we just looked at, we're going to take these commands from the inside out, beginning with fear God. In this statement, Peter's picking up on his first statement after reminding us to be holy as God is holy. 1 Peter 1.17 reads, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Biblically, one of the worst things that can be said about a person is to compare them to Amalek in Deuteronomy 2.25, who did not fear God. Psalm 36.1 tells us, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear, before his, fear of God before his eyes. In contrast to the wicked, we learn from Proverbs 9 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
1 Corinthians 1.30 reminds us that the wisdom of God in person is Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, what is it that you fear? Public speaking? Government corruption? Environmental threats? Loss of income? Yours or a loved one's serious illness or death? Medical bills? Being alone? Persecution for your faith? Offending others? Losing your job? There are many things that we fear, but do we fear God? In general Christian circles, we often hear that fear doesn't really mean fear, but respect or awe. The Greek word here is phobos, which implies dread or a sense of panic. Respect and awe are involved in this fear, but the fear of God is the fear that puts people face down, completely terrified. When people throughout scripture are confronted with the holiness and majesty of God, they respond in legitimate, petrified fear. God, and God or his messenger has to remind them, sometimes more than once, don't be afraid, fear not. In Matthew 8, the disciples were rightfully afraid for their lives as they were in a boat experiencing a storm as Jesus slept. Upon being woken up, Jesus calms the storm and the disciples marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even the winds and the waves obey him. The word behind marveled implies astonished out of their senses. Mark's account of this reads, they feared with great fear. When Jesus, by sheer command, brought the terrifying storm to an end, they were more afraid of him than they had been of the storm. He and their sense of his divinity was the greater of the two threats. Michael Horton describes our relationship with God like this. God is not our buddy, an indulgent grandfather, or a golf partner. He is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth, demanding an account for our sins. This is the real crisis confronting us. It's the crisis that should make us afraid. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Only against this backdrop can we be struck by the force of the precious title, Friend of Sinners. The truth of the matter is, without repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Christ, we believe we are masters of our own domain, when in reality, we're more like Nebuchadnezzar, eating grass like an ox and in control of nothing. It's only when we come to God, as Nebuchadnezzar later did, acknowledging him as God, lifting our eyes to heaven, that our sanity and our reason returns to us. When we get the fear of God right, not wanting to disappoint our Father that loves us, we can walk in faith, knowing that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro to give us strong support. When we fear God, we have nothing else truly to fear. Peter comes back to this in chapter 3, verse 14, where he writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We can love our brothers and sisters and honor those that can kill the body but cannot kill the soul because we fear the one that deserves our fear. So because time is running short, I'm going to briefly cover the other commands. 
moving out from the fear of God to the other part of the central focus of the chiasm, we're instructed to love the brotherhood. This isn't a new idea for Peter. He wrote in chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This echoes Jesus' new commandment to love one another as he has loved us so that all people will know that we are his disciples. Notice that Peter doesn't use the word church. He says the brotherhood. This gets at the nature of the church. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and as a family, we are to love one another. This love isn't sentimental or emotional, based on impulse or feelings, but as one author described it, as acts of one's will, describing another's highest good. This selfless, unconditional love is a reflection of a new heart attitude stemming from the fear of God that gives us spirit-filled submission to God in all things. Finally, let's take a look at the outside commands. Honor everyone and honor the emperor. Our ability to honor is rooted in the fact that we are people that are free, chapter 2, verse 16, and that we are the ones that are recipients of honor from God. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 8 read, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. So as God's chosen people, we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This same Peter that in Acts 4 defied the rulers that told, them, that told him not to speak in the name of Jesus is telling us to honor. This is the norm. We are free in Christ but commanded to subject ourselves in most cases for the Lord's sake to every human institution. These commands to honor are what submission to God looks like in practical terms. Some people are not honorable. Honor them anyway. There's no escape clause here. Any racism in your heart? Off the table. Any hatred you have for someone in a different political camp than you? be it a leader or a neighbor, is not acceptable. Any enmity you hold for someone aligned with LGBTQ plus or pro-choice agendas has to be put away. Honor is owed to everyone. We are, we are to highly esteem all people. People may dishonor you because of your faith in Christ. Do not reciprocate their disrespect. It doesn't matter if they don't look like us, think like us, or live like us. Honor them no matter what their ethnicity, gender, status, religion, or identity, honor them. They were created in God's image and are a soul for whom Christ's death is sufficient to save. Pray for them. Pray for our leaders. We have more power in the prayer closet than in the political action because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. So in closing... As we consider the fear of God, loving the brotherhood, and honoring everyone, 
including the emperor. Hear these words from Rosaria Butterfield about what it may mean for us to live as elect exiles. Elect exiles that should expect trials as we, beha- trials as we be- behave in ways that go against the grain of the culture. And I quote, to be a Christian in the, in the world right now means you get up every morning and say, Lord, may all the people I offend today be offended to your glory. And if I lose my job, please protect my family. Are you up for that? Let's pray. Lord God, teach us to honor everyone, to love our brothers, to fear you above all, and to honor the emperor. God, we pray this because we need your strength to do it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.